Hello, I'm Nicole Abadie and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Welcome to Books, Books, Books. Today I'll be speaking with Canadian writer Michael Christie about his second novel, Greenwood, which is about four generations of a family whose lives are closely connected to trees. Michael is the author of the novel If I Fall, If I Die, which was selected as a New York Times editor's choice and was on numerous best of 2015 lists. His essays and book reviews appear in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Globe and the Mail. He divides his time between Victoria in British Columbia and Galliano Island, where he lives with his wife and two sons in a timber frame house that he built himself. If you go to Michael's website and you have a look at his book club kit, you will see that as well as helpful notes and questions to consider, there are recipes for what you might like to drink as you are discussing his book. There's one for Douglas fir tree, Douglas fir tree tea and fir or spruce vodka. So um, if you're so inclined, you might want to have a look at the uh, website, make yourself a drink before you listen to this conversation. Michael, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me here, Nicole. It's a pleasure. And I uh, recommend both of those drinks in, in moderation, of course. Excellent. Michael, I'd like you to start by reading the opening page of your novel to us, please. I'd love to. It's a short chapter called The Greenwood Arboreal Cathedral. They come for the trees to smell their needles to caress their bark, to be regenerated in the humbling loom of their shadows, to stand mutely in their leafy churches and to pray to their thousand-year-old souls. From the world's dust-choked cities, they venture to this exclusive arboreal resort, a remote forested island off the Pacific Rim of British Columbia, to be transformed, renewed, and reconnected to be reminded that the earth's once thundering green heart has not flatlined, that the soul of all living things has not come to dust and that it isn't too late and that all is not lost. They come here to the Greenwood Arboreal Cathedral to ingest this outrageous lie and it's Jake Greenwood's job as forest guide to spoon feed it to them. Michael, I'm gonna ask you to start with telling us what the book's about, and then we'll return to that passage and to the uh, the way that the book opens. Sure, it's um, Greenwood is a a generational family saga. It's been described as it uh, traverses 130 years. It focuses upon the Greenwood family, uh, sort of from their very beginnings uh, in 1908, and follows them throughout time into the near future, uh, the year 2038. So you mentioned in that passage, or you you talked about the Greenwood Arboreal Cathedral. What is that and where is it? It is an exclusive uh, resort um, on a small island just off the coast of Vancouver, very close to where I live. It is a fictional island, I should point out first. Um, but it is a place where the the wealthy and the sort of elite of society will come 
to seek refuge uh, in this gorgeous old growth forest. And the reason they do is because the world has been besieged by uh, something known as the Great Withering. And this is something, it's a phenomenon that has sort of rolled across the earth and decimated through fire and through fungal blight and through disease, uh, most of the trees on, on the planet. And so these, these rare wooded areas have become very, very valuable um, and are now uh, sort of available only to the wealthy. The Great Withering occurred about 10 years before in 2028. Could you tell us a little bit more about what it is, what it was, and what caused it? Sure. It's actually, it's, I, I like the idea of portraying it as something that is semi-ambiguous. The main character of this future section is a, is a botanist who specializes particularly in uh, Douglas firs. Um, and even she isn't exactly sure what caused it because after the sort of the economic collapse that results, uh, scientists are no longer sharing information and there isn't sort of a con general consensus. This sounds very familiar to the situation we're in now, but there's, there isn't a sort of a general scientific collective effort happening. So there, she has her own theories, but she's not able to co collaborate with others. Um, but generally it's, it's a climate change driven phenomenon such that the trees of the earth are no longer suited to their particular climate zones. Um, and I'm sorry to report that it did not require an enormous amount of imagination. Um, even on the island where I live, <clears throat> the Western red cedar, which is a beautiful ancient tree that indigenous cultures have been using for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Um, those trees are withering now and, and, and browning many of them and dying. Um, and it's due to repeated drought stress. And it's the fact that trees are very finely tuned to their microclimates. And if those are altered, um, they're, they're very vulnerable to all kinds of, of, of afflictions. Michael, what's life like in 2038 uh, as a result of the Great Withering? Could you tell us a little bit about the environmental consequences? You've, you've spoken just then about the trees, but tell us about the dust and the diseases. And then could you tell us a little bit about the economic consequences? Sure. I mean, I sort of imagine it as a sort of a second dust bowl or in a second depression. Um, there's, a, there's a section in this book that is that takes place during the depression in the sort of past section. And uh, I was doing research on it and I realized that it wasn't only an economic disaster, the depression, the Great Depression, it was also an environmental disaster and a man-made one. Um, and so in this future world, um, you know, inequality has risen to an even more inhumane and horrific scale than it is now. Um, dust storms kind of ravage much of North America, sort of the United States. Um, uh, there, you know, sort of what Naomi Klein has called climate barbarism. Uh, has taken over in the sense that our regular societal structures have been mostly um, destroyed. 
And you talk a bit about, I think, the wealthy people who can afford to live in buildings that are completely regulated by air conditioning yes. as compared to the rest of the world who are exposed to this constant dust. And, and there's a new strain of tuberculosis, I think you talk about, that's been caused yes. by this as well. You're correct. Yeah. And that actually a little bit, it's a disease known as rib retch. It's sort of colloquially and colloquially known as, um, and that came out of research as well. There were cases in Oklahoma and cases in the United States of children uh, coming down with what was essentially like black lung uh, due to the dust uh, invading their, their breaths. And so, it, you know, I, very important to me during the writing of this book uh, was to not get too dystopian and not extend my reach beyond you know, just a little bit into the future. I mean, I, dystopian novels are great and I, I like science fiction. I grew up reading a lot of science fiction, but I wanted to keep this book in the realm of the real. Um, and so that's why I only went into the future a little bit and I tried to keep those elements to a minimum while still being honest about where our decimation of the, our planet's ecosystem is going where I see it going is a place like this. I mean, there's no reason to believe that it wouldn't if we don't change our course. Michael, I think the really frightening thing is that at the time you were writing it, um, it was 18 years or so into the future. And at the time you were writing it, were you imagining, as you've said, that that is the future we're facing? Now, in light of when the books come out, right in the midst of the global pandemic of COVID-19, I was wondering... Are we already there? The, par the parallels are quite extraordinary. The parallels that you draw with some of the economic consequences of farms failing, stock markets going crazy, unemployment, wildfires. It all sounds yes. frightening, like, frighteningly like what we're living through right now. Yeah, I mean, I've been asked this question quite a bit. And, you know, it's certainly at no point did I think that you know, things that I would be imagining could, you know, manif be manifesting in the, in, in the world in the way that they sort of are. And actually, I, shortly after the book came out, I, I, I came to the Adelaide uh, Writers Festival, and that was not long after the bushfires. And, you know, I had person after person come up to me and describe the devastation, describe particular trees on their properties that they lost, and, and just the grief the deep, deep grief that I could feel um, in your country was just so moving and, and, and sad and so uncomfortably similar to things that I've described in my, in my novel as well. And so um, that's something that, you know, that no novelist hopes for by any means. But I think that the precariousness of our environment and the sort of precariousness of our economies and the way that those things are tied together and the way that we are all actually very dependent upon one another um, are big themes in the book. And I think that this COVID crisis has been a great example of how fragile these economic <laughs> systems are and then also how dependent on each other we are for our mutual survival. You mentioned earlier that there um there were parallels with the Dust Bowl in the 1930s. Yes. As you said, a big chunk of the novel is set in 1934, part of it on a farm in uh, Saskatchewan where the farmer, Temple, is struggling to survive. 
John Steinbeck wrote about that period in Grapes of Wrath, which you've called the mother of all eco-fictions. What influence did John Steinbeck and that book have on you in the writing of Greenwood? It would be very, I mean, this would have to be a three-hour podcast, I think, if I really try to appropriately answer that. Um, he, he's just always... He's just always been a writer who spoke to me. I mean, I came from a pretty working class kind of background. I've done, you know, trades work. I've, you know, worked with homeless people in homeless shelters. And it was just, he's always been a, a, a person who seemed to capture the spirit of the marginalized and the poor and the people who are searching for a better life. And Grapes of Wrath, you know, it's just a book that has become part of me, I think, on, on many levels as a writer. And I, you know, I, I, I relished the opportunity to write into that period and to do my own version of it and, you know, to do the research and, and, and get those details and to enter that world was great, great fun for me. Let's talk a little bit now about the members of the Greenwood family. I'd like to start by asking you to describe the structure of the book okay, and then to explain to our listeners why you chose to write it in that way. Sure. It's so the book itself, the narrative is structured like the rings of a tree. Um, it's sort of a play on the idea of a family tree. Also very heavily dependent on the subject matter of the book, which is that everyone in the Greenwood family has something to do with trees and forests. Um, but the story is told, as, as I mentioned previously, it begins in the near future, 2038, with a character whose name is Jake Greenwood. And she is a overqualified um, tree scientist who is working as essentially a guide, a theme park guide for the wealthy, taking them through these beautiful trees that are sort of the last standing. Um, and she's, she drinks too much. She is, uh, not exactly satisfied in her life, but she is also quite a, a strong and complex person. I think I would call her. Um, so we move from that section back in time. So this shifts back, uh, one of the rings of the tree. I like to think of it as the narrative rings back to 2008 um, where we meet um, Liam Greenwood, who is Jake's estranged father. Um, and Liam Greenwood is a carpenter uh, who does reclaimed wood installations in the houses of the extremely wealthy, kind of on the East Coast of the United States. Um, and he's a troubled guy. He uh, grew up uh, in, mostly in a Westphalia van uh, with his hippie mother, whose name is uh, Willow Greenwood. And her section is the 1974 section. So the story is moving back in time as it progresses through the book. And Willow Greenwood is a fervent environmentalist. She is, uh, she performs direct actions in where she will sabotage logging equipment um, in order to preserve uh, old growth forests of the Pacific Northwest. By pouring um, bags of sugar into the <laughs> fuel tanks. <laughs> It, that is one of the ways, yes. Yeah, or she'll also paint over the markings that uh, the forest companies will put on trees of selecting which trees to take down. So she, it's, she's kind of a nonviolent uh, protester and you know, interventionist. Uh, and from there, we move back to 1934. And this one is a little bit more tricky for me to describe, but 
It centers around a number of characters, mainly uh, uh, Everett Greenwood, who is a uh, veteran of the First World War. He is a pretty damaged guy. He's sort of a hermit at the beginning of the story. And his estranged brother, Harris Greenwood, who is a blind uh, timber tycoon who has amassed this great fortune, kind of you know, clear-cutting much of Canada and um, some of the United States. And from there, the final narrative jump is to the center of the book, the year 1908. And that is kind of centers on the moment when the, the Greenwood family began. And uh, I can't, go ahead. Can you, yeah, can you tell us about, so the, in effect, the book, in the way that a tree has concentric circles, the yes. book moves back generation by generation by generation. And then we start to work back outwards again. Why did you choose to write the book in that way? And where did you get the idea? Great question. I, I had these characters, and this is where it usually begins for me, is with characters, with images of people and, 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 and struggles that they're facing. And I had a number of characters sort of orbiting in my imagination, um, and I was taking notes on them and writing about them. But it wasn't until I realized that they all shared a characteristic, and that was they all had something to do with forests and trees. Some of them are carpenters, some of them are eco warriors, some of them are scientists, some of them, but everyone shared this commonality. And I realized that I really wanted to write about a family um, and that the, all of these people were in fact related to one another. Um, and so fast forward, I was doing a bunch of writing, but still the, the book wasn't hanging together in the way that I would have wanted it to. Um, and there was a moment when I, I was cutting down a tree because uh, I live on a small forested island off the coast of Vancouver. But that's where I mainly write and we spend most of our time there. Um, and so I was clearing a space for a driveway. Uh, and I I'm, don't imagine me as a big burly lumberjack, please. Uh, and so I was, I, you know, figured out how to cut down this tree. I had a chainsaw and I did it. It fell. I was scared it came down uh and then i looked at the stump uh it was fresh and it was uh oozing sap um and i looked at it and i realized that it it was a map of its own life that it was a time line and that it was telling its own story in a way and i and i imagined construct i came to me in a kind of a flash normally i don't believe these epiphany uh, stories, but this is what happened. And I realized that I could tell a story in that way and that uh, it would be a way to demonstrate how time works, how trees work, but also how families are sort of built on the generations that come before. And I thought, wow, what a wonderful metaphor. Uh, and I went and told my agent, uh, who's a very good writer himself, um, about this idea. And he said, I can't believe you just told me this, like, don't tell anyone this idea because no one's ever done this. And it, you know, it turned out to be a fairly innovative, I guess, way to structure a narrative and to talk about a family. And the critical thing about the tree, wasn't it, that looking at, at it in cross-section like that, it was made up of concentric circles and each, the, the tree grows by developing layer upon layer upon layer, but always based on what's gone before. This is correct. And the newest wood in a tree is always on the very outer ring. And the inner wood is essentially 
uh, usually dead. The heartwood of a tree is no longer technically living. It's only the very outer rings. So I thought, what an interesting way to describe a family. I mean, and, and you know, I during the writing of this novel, I had two children. I or had one child, but also, yeah, it, it added up to two children. And also my parents had both passed away um, sort of suddenly. And so I became very aware of my own place in this kind of generational chain and my own life being built upon the lives that came before me and then watching these new lives enter the stage of the world and their lives being built on the foundation of mine. And so I became very sort of interested in this intergenerational communication and this intergenerational uh, accumulation. Let's go back to talk a little bit more about each of these characters. You've given us a little bit of a thumbnail sketch. There's such, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about the five main characters. And I want in each case, it seems to me that what they all have in common, they all have in common two things, a really difficult childhood and a love of trees and of wood. So I would like to take you through each of the characters, starting from Jake and going back and ask you to discuss in relation to each of them. Just tell us a little bit about that person's childhood and a little bit about their affinity for trees, their love of wood. So let's start with Jake. Jake is, um, she, oh, wow, this is a tricky one. Um, Jake is, uh, didn't know her father uh, at all. Uh, her mother was a, uh, a concert violist uh, who died when she was young. Um, and Jake was sent to live uh, uh, with her grandparents uh, and who were sort of disinterested grandparents uh, in India. Jake is a mixed race person. And, uh, and the yeah, one thing that she finds solace in is the big yes. tree in their backyard. The banyan tree, yes. In their backyard, there's a, a giant network of banyan trees, which actually, you know, go for miles beneath the earth and connect with one another. And, and, and so this, this, this maze in her backyard was kind of her way of, was her companion and her playmate uh, as a person who was very lonely as a girl. Um, and so her interest in trees was both, you know, a, a, a kind of a, a companionship one, but also a scientific one from very early in her life. And she uh, goes on to uh, study uh, trees. There's a, there's a famous institute uh, in Dira Dun in uh, in India, which is a, a famous sort of uh, place where trees have been studied. And she goes there, and eventually goes to university in British Columbia and becomes a sort of leading specialist on the communicative uh, uh, powers of Douglas firs. And this is something that's actually true that these trees and other trees are able to warn each other of danger. They're able to share resources. They're able to, uh, you know, uh, shelter their young to some degree, these incredibly human traits that they exhibit. And so Jake becomes an expert um, in that. Uh, But Jake is also a victim of the fact that she has, she's a smart person. She has everything going for her. 
Um, but the world is falling apart and she's saddled with student debt. She's saddled with a job that is essentially beneath her. Um, and so she is, is, you know, she's, she's, she's been thwarted to some degree in and her this, life. This is a product for her of the great withering, isn't it? And it's something I think that all of us with children worry about for our own children right now. She has a huge student debt because she's done a PhD amongst other things. And she could have expected by now to be a professor earning a professorial salary that would enable her to pay off that student debt. But because she hasn't been able to get a proper job, she's saddled with this crippling debt and is, is doing something way below her skill level. And that, I think yes. that rings true in a very frightening way for a lot of us. Yes. Kids yeah. Right this now. is what we totally, yeah, this is what we see. And she's sort of the, I almost, I imagine sort of taking a millennial and extending uh, her into the short term future. And, you know, that, you know, that it's, it's a frightening idea to think that, you know, these, this is a generation that is facing a world, you know, that has less opportunity less upward mobility, less equality than the one that we did. Um, and that, that's a... Which is a, an unbearable a, thought. It is. It is, particularly as someone with kids, it's, you know, it's, it's devastating. Um, and so I, I, I liked those aspects of Jake, and I liked the way that she could kind of capture that uh, sensibility of, of, you know, I did everything right, and look where it look where it got me, you know, and I think that's a very common feeling among young people now. Even So let's talk now, we'll go back yep. a generation to her father, Liam. So she never knew her father, but could yes. you tell us a little bit about him and his childhood and then his relationship with trees and with wood? Sure. Yeah. Liam is a, uh, uh, when the novel, when we meet him in the novel, it's, he's working. I don't want to give too much away here, but he's working uh doing an installation at a fancy fancy house he's a uh, he's a carpenter he's He's made a life for himself as a carpenter this is correct yeah um and liam is a he's a troubled guy he's someone who's had uh opioid addiction uh issues in his life that he's struggled with but has managed to get a hold of uh through incessant work um and a kind of uh retreat from what we would normally think is a normal life. He lives mostly in his work van um, and essentially just takes as many jobs as he can um, to fill his days and to keep him on track and to keep him away from drugs, but also to kind of hide from the more emotional parts of life that he doesn't want to confront. And yep. And that's a bit, uh, of, a, a bit of a flashback, isn't it? The fact that he lives in the van Tell us a little bit about his very own childhood. Good, very good point. Yes. So Liam um, Greenwood grew up uh, with his mother, solely with his mother. He didn't have, uh, didn't know his father. Um, and as I mentioned before, she is a environmental activist and they live mostly in a Westphalia van traveling around the Pacific Northwest. Um, he is homeschooled. He, you know, eats chickpeas and brown rice and tahiti most of his life with his mom in the forest um and he grows up uh kind of fascinated and in love with his mom but also embittered by the things that he misses out on and the fact that yep what's she like as a mother she is uh she is magnetic 
Um, she is uh, very, very capable. She is strong. Um, but she is also obsessed um, to the point of it affecting her relationships. She's obsessed with her environmental agenda and her environmental work to, you know, and it, it, it takes over uh, her life to the degree that, you know, she, her, her focus is not necessarily on her son. Um, in fact, I think he says to her at one point, Mum, which do you love more, trees or me? And her answer yeah. is pretty clear. Yeah. And she tries to sort of frame it as, you know, something that's exciting. And she says, it's better than that. It's, nature is greater than us all, you know. And that, to her, the idea that nature loves everyone more than anyone loves another person is an exciting one. But to a young boy, um, the idea that, you know, she, his mother loves nature more than him is a pretty devastating moment for him. So he grows up, I think, in, you know, he does have a troubled childhood and he is has trouble, I think, later in his life, accepting love and, you know, accepting intimacy. And he struggles with relationships. Um, but he's also a good person, a fundamentally good person, I think, um, as well. Let's go now to talk about his mum, Willow. Tell us a bit yes. about her childhood. Willow Greenwood. Wow, there are a lot of bad childhoods in this book. I've just, uh, yeah, it's... You just noticed that? Yeah, I just, no, I know. I, you know it's, it's a, I mean, I think it's, they're not necessarily bad. They're complicated troubled. And, and troubled. And I think, you know... Unconventional. Find me, a per, find me a person with a perfect childhood and I will disbelieve you, you yeah. know? Um, so Willow Greenwood grew, grew up uh, with her father, Harris Greenwood, um, who is a, as I mentioned before, who is a blind person and who is a sort of fallen, uh, disgraced timber tycoon. He uh, had much of his empire kind of taken away from him uh, at some point um, after World War II because of various reasons. And so he... So she lives with him and but she has... You know, I'll, I'll just but, stop you there for a moment. Going back yeah. bef before that happened, we won't talk any more about that, but before yeah. that happened, he was a very, very wealthy man who That's had right. built a hugely successful business. And so she's raised by him in a life of quite incredible opulence and luxury, right? Incredible luxury, yes. And she, you know, at first, you know, is very much uh, happy. Uh, with, you know, the equestrian classes and the private schools and the big mansion. Uh, but as she grows up, she becomes disillusioned. Um, and she goes off to school to study forestry like her father and kind of has an environmental awakening uh, while she's there at Yale. And um, her whole world kind of caves in on her. And she realizes that not only are humans destroying the planet, but her own father is responsible for an enormous share of that destruction. And it's something that she, she can't, she can't understand and it fractures her, her world. And so she generates it. She comes up with a pretty complicated relationship with her father. And that was because yep. her father was a timber baron who made all of his money. I think at one point you say he's logged 500 million trees or something. And that's, that's right absolutely she's she's absolutely repulsed by that and that really destroys then her it was never a great relationship anyway but once That's she right. seizes onto that that really 
completely poisons her relationship with her father. There's one character, there's one character in the book who remarks that Harris Greenwood brought more trees down than wind, woodpeckers, and God put together. So uh, it was a lot of trees. Yeah. And so she begins to live her life in sort of opposition to him. And she sets on this, uh, on a journey to uh, live not only in in this sort of self-inflicted poverty uh, in her van, but also, you know, striving to make amends for the harm that her father has caused uh, on the planet. Um, and so that's mainly what, what drives, drives Willow. Now we're going to get to the heart of the story. Let's talk a little mm-hmm. bit about Harris and Everett. And let's go back to 1908 where their story starts with a train collision. Tell us about that. So this this section of the novel is nar- is narrated from the the uh, collective perspective of a small town in southern Ontario, sort of near Kingston, um, and so it's told in the we, um, and it's 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 a, it's a kind of a it's a fun voice that I discovered when I was writing the this section, and it really highlights the the feeling of the, the the tininess of this town and the way that this town has faced this tragedy, um, and the tragedy uh, is these trains of collided. Um, There are no survivors other than two young boys uh, who are discovered near the tracks. Um, And the boys don't look alike, really. Um, And uh, they check with the train, the CN Railway, and the, the railway company says they have no record of any children being on that passenger train. So they're not their problem. So the the town is uh, decides to take these children in um, and uh, give them names and uh, billet them with various houses in the, in the town, um, and the the difficulties begin there. So the little boys are about nine, and they're not yes. natural brothers, but they are raised as brothers, and they yes. end up spending most of their childhood on a woodlot owned by a Mrs. Craig. Tell us a little yes. bit about their childhood. Sure. Um, Mrs. Craig is a, is a, is a widow who uh, is living in sort of a, 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 she's from Scotland originally, emigrated with her husband, who is a physician. Uh, her husband uh, died shortly after they arrived in Canada, um, after building her this sort of beautiful house, uh, and she lives there alone. Uh, but on their property is like a, a kind of a trapper's shack. Um, and uh, since the boys are behave poorly and, and they are causing all kinds of trouble in the town, she agrees to let them stay in this shack on her property uh, and, and to bring them food and various things that they need for a small sum of money from the town as a way to kind of take care of them. Um, and she is a difficult person. She is sort of a... a, a, a a mysterious figure um, in the town, and uh, she certainly doesn't raise them with the kind of love and, and, and care that you would hope for. She doesn't let them ever enter her home, does she? No, she doesn't. No. Um, so it's a pretty for, re- for reasons pretty... that. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, I was going to say. So they grow up in a very, um, really, in a loveless environment. This is true. And I think that, you know, they're 
many, many characters. You're right to point out the similarities of many of these characters' childhoods in the sense that there are deficiencies, I think, various kinds of deficiencies um, in all of the upbringings of, of, of my characters. And, and often, I think, something to do with trees or something to do with the fascination with trees slips into that hole that is left behind um, in each of those characters' hearts. These boys, from when they're about 11 or 12, start to develop their own relationship with trees, don't they? They start chopping firewood, providing firewood for the local people, and um, that sort of becomes their raison d'etre, that, that, that that's their thing, this affinity with trees. And then one of them gets sent, or they both get sent to school. Tell us, tell us what happens in relation to their education. They do. So they're, they, they're, they both start to make their living just cutting up trees that have fallen down on, on Mrs. Craig's uh, woodlot and, and selling them. And the town people sort of see it as an act of charity to buy their wood um, because, you know, they feel bad for them, essentially. Um, and they, originally, they, they, I can give this part away I think is that originally the boys are selling what is known as green wood which is wood that has not been seasoned enough or dried enough after it's been cut and that you don't want to burn in a wood stove because it'll it'll put creosote in your chimney and cause a big problem so but they're buying their green wood anyway um as a kind of an act of charity um and so when the boys are sent to school they don't they only have first names and so they just kind of write them down as the green wood boys and that is sort of how the name uh, Greenwood uh, comes to be. Um, and, but when they're at school, they're, they're kind of feral creatures and they, you know, they fight quite a bit with one another. They don't have any kind of guidance with respect to parental figures. And so... But they're very loyal, they're very loyal to each other, aren't they? So they're they also, they're bullied at school and they, yes. they together, um, that, that sort of bonds them. And it yes. means that it's a very, a pretty deep loyalty between them. There is, yes. And there's one quote, it's, I think it's, at home they, f- they fought face to face, but at school it was back to back, which I think is true of many siblings. <laughs> it certainly was true for my brother and I uh, at school. So, um, so yeah, they're at school and but there's all kinds of problems. They're, you know, they're causing, there's fights and there's disobedience. They're not made for, to be inside. And so it's decided that only one of them will uh, receive schooling and the other one will return to the woodlot and do the work that they need to do to pay for their living. And so it's Harris Greenwood who is selected to stay in school and who goes on to sort of great things um, in terms educationally anyway in, in his life. I don't want to give very much away about this wonderful story, but something happens in 1915 that causes a rift between the brothers and then they don't encounter each other again until 1934. Again, I'm being, listeners, please excuse me for being a little bit cryptic, but uh, I don't want to give away too much of the plot of this fabulous book. <laughs> uh, but let's just say in 1934, a very significant event takes place in Everett's life. What happens in 1934 that will really change the path of his life forever? So Everett's... Um went to world fought in world war one returned to canada a very sort of damaged person like so many veterans did um and was not able to return to society and kind of 
got into trouble, did a bunch of drinking, um, but eventually settled um, in a, uh, a forest of maple trees owned by a very wealthy man on the east coast of Canada uh, in New Brunswick. And so Everett is a kind of a hermit who's squatting this land and is tapping these maple trees um, for syrup and selling the syrup to kind of finance his existence. Um, and one morning, um, Everett finds an infant um, hanging from one of the taps uh, of his trees, of his maple trees, and is faced with a dilemma. Uh, does, he, does he take it or not? Let's talk about some of the, the themes of your book, Michael. Mm-hmm. Obviously, one that, that wends its way through it and is really central, as is apparent from what we've said already, is that each of these characters has a very strong connection to trees. You've talked, I think, a bit before about saying that that is really one of the central themes of the novel, the interconnectedness between humans and trees. I know that you read a lot about the importance of trees psychologically to human beings. Can you tell us a little bit about that research? Sure, yeah, this is something that is, uh, every day it seems like scientists are discovering more and more of these incredible benefits to the human mind and spirit and and physio and health. Uh, The benefit of being among trees. Um, And so, yeah, there, there are studies now that have shown that just being in a forest will drop your blood pressure. It will uh, uh, increase your score on a number of tests, including creativity tests, intelligence tests, time spent in the woods. Um, if you go and take a test afterwards, you're going to be smarter. Um, uh, there's some, and just it's it's incredible. I feel like I often can't keep up with them all, and it's just this this fascinating branch of science because I think we've always known on a particularly particularly in our myths and our our fairy tales and you know the myths of all cultures across the the world involve trees in deep ways you know the tree of life and Norse mythology and it goes on and on Um, but we've always known that we've had this bone deep connection I think with trees but this is only being actually proven and discovered now by by scientists which is really exciting and it factored into the writing of this novel i became very fascinated obviously you don't write a 550 page novel about something without being interested in it a little bit but i became very just fascinated and enamored by trees and i you know sort of was feeding my own curiosity as i as i was writing you use two strong tree analogies Um, The first one is this concept of a family as being like a forest. So this book's about four generations of family. Yeah. All of these characters are motherless. Uh, That has a very damaging effect on their lives. And you, you talk about this relationship between a family and a forest. Could you describe that analogy for us a little bit? I Yeah, I mean, it's... I've always loved books about family trees and family lineages. And I've always loved those diagrams, you know, in the front of a novel, 
and those really complicated ones where you've got to have a tree to, to sort out who is who and who's married to, you know. Um, but I've always found them slightly or more than slightly just disingenuous in the sense that, you know, who's at the top is usually a man. It's usually this sort of great man who's had his name trickle down through the ages and this tree is beneath him and, you know, all of the successes are sort of attributed to him. And I found, I, I found that idea very sort of offensive for a number of reasons. Um, but so I really wanted to write a book about a family and about a family tree, but to do it in a way that questioned this whole idea of lineage and questioned this whole idea of uh, individuals. Um, I really like the idea that trees appear solitary, but in fact are communicating and are depending upon one another. And it's interesting to think of the tree being our sort of founding metaphor for a family that the family tree is, a, that is how we conceive of a family, but that it's not a tree. A family is a collective. It is a, a group of individuals caring for one another. And I, and I prefer that idea than, you know, to the idea of just a, one single tree. You write at one point in the book, families are not born, they're invented, pieced together from love and lies and nothing else. I thought it was really interesting that the only model we have of good parenting in this book is Everett and the way that he deals with this baby that he finds. She is not related to him by blood. Is that what you were talking about when you were saying families are not born, they're invented, that it's it's not dependent on blood lineage that a family is is something much broader than that absolutely and i think you know the the there are many more sort of things about this novel that would prove that case as well even from you know the the sort of final act of jake greenwood in the end of the novel is kind of act of hope she uh decides to care for someone who she's not biologically related to um and that that's a very important idea to me and i see it in you know friends with adopted children i see it in the families people build you know in in the in the most interesting of ways um and i feel you know in my own life i have um struggled with this idea of family i had a pretty difficult upbringing and um have ended up crafting a family um in it's it's very i think important to remember just how constructed these ideas are and how you know how dependent they are on our investment in them um and how you know we build them we build families we build relationships um and and that's what matters not you know who you who you share DNA with? It just seems less interesting to me. The other analogy you make is between a person and a tree. And at one point we mm -hmm. had Jake. We've talked a little bit about that already. But at one point Jake Jake realizes that just as a tree grows layer by layer, um, you say held up by the bones of its ancestors, so is she the product of the lives that have come before. Now in her case she hasn't met a lot of her family members. She didn't know her father, Liam. She didn't know her grandmother, Willow. But still, they influence who she is as a person. What impact do our families, our biological families or the families that raised us, 
have on our mm-hmm. lives. And in this case, we see specifically uh, the effects of a difficult childhood. What impact does a difficult childhood have on the lives of, of people? Well, that's a big question, but a good one. Um, I think that Jake is a person who is not really interested in her family lineage at the beginning, but becomes more so interested sort of throughout the arc of her story. And I do, I just in my own personal experience, I don't think I ever truly appreciated. This is a gigantic cliche. I'm sorry, but that. I'd never truly appreciated what my parents had done for me until I had children. And there, there was just, it's impossible to appreciate the I think number. Most of, most of us say that. <laughs> yeah. Like there is just, and, and I think, you know, that I really became aware of those people who are now gone, who are living inside me now and whose effort and time and all the laundry and all the, pieces of toast that have been buttered for me you know that all of that those actions and all that love essentially is living in me now and is part of who I am and I am sort of passing that on down through this chain um and I you know I surely other people have written about this these themes before but I just felt like this was a great opportunity for me to really dig into that idea and then I you know the, the writing this novel was my way of finding a way to express these things that I really feel felt like I needed to say Michael there was a, there was a second part to your question that I totally ignored the, but, uh, the the impact of a bad childhood the way that it yeah. impacts on all of these individuals sure and I think this is there's I've always been really interested in childhoods and I, whenever I have a new friend, I'm always, you know, gleefully interrogating them on, you know, what, what their childhood looked like and, you know, um, how they think it has affected them. Because I think those foundational stories to me are, are such a huge part of who we are and, you know, you don't want to overstate it, but you definitely don't want to understate it. And so I, I think that there are many characters in this, many many of these characters are living almost in uh, refutation of the people that came before them. So if it's like, my father is a timber tycoon, I'm going to be a radical environmentalist. My mother's a radical environmentalist, I'm going to be a carpenter, you know, and there's this sort of, this sort of dialogue almost that I've noticed in my own life. I mean, I, my mother, uh, when I was growing up, was agoraphobic, um, and she was uh, housebound for most of her life. So I spent, you know, a lot of time indoors with her. And she was a very creative, intelligent, wonderful person. But she was also full of fear um, and was incapacitated by fear. And so, what did I do? I threw myself at the world and was afraid of nothing. As you were a skateboarding uh, champion, I was a right? professional skateboarder. Yeah, I was a professional skateboarder. I was the kind of kid who would just do anything. Uh, it didn't matter. And, you know, it, I find it fascinating. Those things are fascinating to me. The way that we, you know, the way that we sort of flee who our parents are, but then also end up becoming them in the end. You know, this stuff to me is pretty is about as interesting as it gets. So I uh, I think most of my fiction, if not all of it, has to do with 
the the foundational relationships of the family and how that plays out in people's lives and where, where they end up. Let's end by going back to the beginning. We're in 2038. The great withering has occurred. At one point in the book, you say that the during or as a consequence of the great withering, utter despair becomes the only rational response. Are you in utter despair now in light of the COVID-19 pandemic or do you feel optimistic, optimistic about humanity's capacity to overcome and to recover? I think that the, the COVID-19 is certainly worrisome and is certainly a massive, massive tragedy, but I still am more worried about climate change. I mean, I... Uh, it's the kind of thing that you can't put a mask on for. Uh, you know, you can't social distance out of ecological collapse. Um, and so... Um, Can I take that, Michael, and ask you, what impact do you yeah. think that COVID-19 and this pandemic and this crisis will have on people's attitude towards climate change and towards environmental issues? Do you think that it will make people realise how vulnerable we really are and sit up and take notice and, and act in a way that, that we haven't done for so long? Do you think it will spur people into action? I do. And it's, it, I mean, I, the, the hopeful part of me does. And I think, you know, and it's certainly I'm not going to sit here and say that it is in any way a, a net good thing for COVID-19 to happen. It's a tragedy. It's devastating. I wish it never happened. But it has shown us not only the precarity of many of the, the systems that we've set up, the economic system, the, you know, everything that we sort of taken for granted previously has now been dismantled in the, in the, you know, in two months, <laughs> you know, there are no more airplanes flying around. That is like, as a massive implications for environmental recovery. And I think people have been shocked by how, you know, easy these things are to dis easily these things disappear. The, you know, these things that we previously took for granted. And also I think that particularly in those societies that seem to be able to generate collective action to generate uh, sort of a cooperative approach to this thing are the ones who have done exceedingly well in, you know, those societies with, you know, single-payer healthcare systems have done better. Those societies who haven't torn them, each other apart during this process have come out ahead. And I think that is a singing uh, uh, endorsement of a particular way of, of living. Um, and so, you know, I think we're going to not only face this very difficult crisis we have other crises to face in the near to long-term future and i hope we can face them with this same kind of collective pragmatic um approach that we seem to be uh doing with covid so that i i, I am slightly hopeful you talk, you've talked before about um the fact that you have hope, you feel optimistic about humanity's capacity I do. for resilience and for resourcefulness. And you, you talk, for example, about you obviously did a lot of reading and research about the Dust Bowl in the 1930s. 
So I guess for my final question, and you probably answered it in part already, yeah, but sure. do you still have that faith in humanity's resourcefulness and resilience? I do. And I got in trouble. I mean, people, you know, got, got after me after that because, you know, people were saying climate change and the Dust Bowl and oppression are very different. This is, you know, is, of course they are. Um, but I did, I do think that, you know, particularly when I was reading about the Dust Bowl and just the way our ability to survive um, and our resourcefulness when we are faced with a crisis uh, is incredible. And our, and our ability to take care of one another, our ability to um, um, create systems that actually benefit all of us rather than just a few of us, I think, um, can, be, can be very, very powerful. And I think that we're going to require that same kind of spirit coming out of this, coming out of COVID, but also entering, you know, climate change 2.0 as things get worse, and I'm sure they will, we're going to need that same spirit and that same resourcefulness and that same collective action to, you know, to survive. And I think we can. I think we can do it. That's a great note to end on, Michael. Thank you so much for joining me today and for speaking to me and to our listeners. Congratulations on a fantastic book. I know that it's in the um, running for a number of awards right now, so I wish you the very best of luck with that. And uh, I hope we get to see you in Australia again before too soon once this darkness lifts. It, it was my pleasure, Nicole, and thank you very much. I hope to be back in Australia as soon as I can. So I'll see you there. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabity.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abity, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. Since it's a new podcast, it would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon.